You're listening to The Ramped Podcast, a podcast connecting industry heavyweights with the next generation of talented professionals. We're on a mission to build transparency into the practical realities of your early career by exploring how the world's best did it themselves. Our guidance will help you discover and launch a successful career in sales, technology, finance, and many other industries. We have a real superstar today on Workforce Disrupted, presented by The Ramp Podcast. Our guest is James Gross, the co-founder of Variance. James is a visionary in every sense of the word. Before founding Variance, he founded Percolate, which was acquired by Seismic. At a foundational level, James is an optimist, a hustler, somebody with grit, and lives with intention. His ideas on the future of work span many realms, including what sales will look like, how remote work will impact the next generation, and what tools and software we will use in the coming years. I absolutely loved learning from James during this conversation. And frankly, I wish I had met him earlier in my career. Please enjoy this discussion on the future of work on this episode of Workforce Disrupted, presented by The Ramp Podcast. All right, everybody, we are back here on the Workforce Disrupted podcast. Today, I am joined by James Gross of Variance. And James, uh, funny story how we connected. We connected through uh, my buddy, who is also your former coworker, Avi Mash. And he said great things. He said, you got to get James on the podcast. He's got a really cool trajectory. Obviously, your experience at Variance, but prior to that at Percolate and, and tons of other stops in the way all thinking through marketing, through sales, and um, pumped to connect with you today here on, on Workforce. Thanks, Danny. I'm pumped to be here. Awesome. So we'll jump right in. I would love to hear before we get started with the specifics, you know, who is James Gross? Tell us about you and your formative years. Sure. Yeah. Um, I came from a big family. I'm one of eight kids. There's four girls and four boys. Kind of moved all around the United States. I got a very good sense of the country. I was born in Philadelphia, lived in Houston, Texas for six years, lived in Westbrook, Maine for seven years, moved to Southern California when I was just getting into high school. And then, yeah, moved to the Bay, moved to New York City. Uh, and now I live uh, with my, my three kids and my wife in uh, San Diego, California. Oh, yeah. So just in terms of formative, um, you know, and I think for, for your audience, which I uh, is an audience that I just really admire and I can't wait to see sort of grow up, you know, I, I was very passionate, uh, very, very actually influenced by a movie while I was in college called Triumph of the Nerds. And it was a movie basically that, that, that was, uh, that was created in the nineties that documented Silicon Valley and being in college at the time, coming from a big family, uh, coming from, you know, basically lower to middle, up, middle-class upbringing. One thing I was always kind of concerned about in my, my collegiate years was like, how would I get ahead? How would I create a, a great career. And I watched this movie and this movie taught me that one, technology generally moves in cycles. And two, um, actually you could get ahead by trying to understand those cycles and being on the front end of those cycles. And by being an entrepreneur, by basically trying to understand something that other people didn't understand and just being ambitious and creative and trying to explain this new world to, to people and building things around it. And uh, again, as someone that didn't come up, I didn't go to a great school. I didn't have any money. I thought, okay, this is how I could get ahead. It was about 
salesmanship. It was about understanding a future that potentially people didn't understand, being early, being curious, and uh, you know, having grit and ambition. And so um, that that movie had a huge impact on my life. And so when I I got out of college, I didn't even you know I didn't actually go to my graduation. I moved immediately to Silicon Valley and said I'm going to become an internet entrepreneur uh, in 2005. Unfortunately, that that you can't become an internet entrepreneur. You need need to have connections and know people. <laughs> so I ended up you know kind of going to work for a Hispanic newspaper um, selling Spanish language. Uh, advertising in in the Bay Area in San Francisco, but eventually, I, you know, I was able to get uh, and run a more and have more of an entrepreneurial career. But yeah, I think for for your audience and in terms of my formative years, uh, that movie had a huge impact on me. For anyone out there, my my takeaway was: you don't have to go to the best school, you don't have to come from money, but you, what you're looking for is that that wedge, that opportunity where you think you can be uniquely great and uniquely ambitious. And, um, and yeah, just, just believing in yourself and going for it. That is, uh, that's awesome. I'm going to have to one, I'm gonna have to check out that movie because it sounds, sounds great. And I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, and two, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, in, in tech for sure, you know, you don't need to be the number one coder in the entire world to be great in tech. You need to just have a perspective, find your niche and, you know, really crush it. And I love what you were saying about being an entrepreneur, being creative, getting ahead of a cycle and showing your perspective on it. And I think those are all true things. I've been, you know, in tech for 10, 11 years now. And I think all of those things are, are, are fundamentally true, which is, which is great. And big, big family, which, uh, which order did you fall mm -hmm. in? I was number five. Number um, five. So yeah, yeah. I basically just, you know, by, by that time, probably uh, what was great about being a middle child of a big family is you could <clears throat> kind of do whatever you want. You know, it, it seemed like uh, oftentimes the, the attention would go towards the poles and the middle ones could kind of roam free, which uh, I appreciated. I liked, I liked being on my own. That's nice. That is true. I'm, I'm one of three, so not as big of a family, but, uh, but you get, you, you're under the microscope as the oldest. So there's many, many benefits <laughs> as the oldest too, but, uh, but, but you're definitely under the microscope. So, so jumping in more uh, to, to the workforce, and I know you have thoughts here. What do you think is important when considering how people are going to work in the future? The future of work is the, the tagline, but, but what's going to be important? Well, I, I think for for younger people, you know, the, the the most amazing thing is, you know, I I think arguably the the most interesting thing that's happened in my career is the internet, right? The internet is just a, this incredible force that that has changed the world so much. And for what I'm so excited for with young people and the future of work is just we are also living through this now great shift to the idea that for the for so many jobs, the potential to work remote is very real now, and the the potential to have true autonomy. And it is very real in your work. And so I, I just think we're, we're simply starting over in a way. And, you know, I think this, I like to say it a lot, but this child's mind mentality towards work is, is one that I think you need. And so I think for people coming up in their careers, you know, I, I think it's about what they need to define it. And we need to ultimately learn from them because they're going to be the first generation, just like I think you and I, Danny, were probably the first generation that sort of grew up a little bit with the internet. This generation is going to grow up with a very different view on on what work is and the the boundaries around it and the way things get done. And and so you know, it's just it's incredibly exciting because whenever you have change, I think you have the ability for there to be a lot of new leaders and a lot of new rules to be written. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment as well. And you know, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. A little off of what you were just saying, 
So we, we get a we get an interesting view at Ramped of folks who are coming back online and requiring folks to be in office and folks who aren't. And I don't know I don't know the right answer. I don't know if there's going to be a winner or a loser there. Do you have a perspective on that? And you know, as it pertains to this kind of work remote or work, uh, you know, on your own type of environment, do you think we're going to start to see companies all offer hybrid? Companies offer you know work from you're you know from from anywhere always or you know just a full shift back to the office yeah that's a good question and i i'm not the company i've started now the first company i started we were in an office company we had you know hundreds of employees in very large headquarters in new york and california and even in london in europe and with my with our new company that we started variants even this was pre-COVID, we were going to be remote first. It's a more technical company, more technical product. Uh, we believe deeply in like documenting our culture through the written word and through other ways that basically you didn't have to be in the office. At the time, the remote concept was still a little bit contrarian, right? The, you know, 99% of all companies were not remote. Um, we were doing something that other companies had definitely pioneered. Um, but we were still in the, the the great minority. Now it seems almost contrarian to say you're going to go back to the office, right? Um, right. Uh, given we're still legitimately living through a global pandemic. But I do I do believe that remote is the future because the world should be more in- interconnected. People should have more opportunity, and the you know the the urban centers are are just simply unaffordable for the the great majority of um, the greatest talent in the world that lives somewhere yeah. else. And now we can have the tools and the operational uh, horsepower to put this in play in many in many respects because of of how much we've been able to accelerate adoption um, with COVID. So yeah, I, I and, and I'm very concerned about hybrid. Actually, I think hybrid has the potential to do way more harm than good in the classic state of you know the political nature, the, the politics that can occur in companies, and the ability to write rules that make sense for everyone when you're building. When you're trying to build a fair environment, an equitable environment. So I I think I see way too much hybrid talk that ultimately to me looks like a, a very big nightmare to actually execute on. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, sounds it's good a, though. Yeah, right, right. It sounds <laughs> it, so, it sounds good. I would say you know, I, I'm I'm seeing that play out in real life right now. So, you know, we just brought on our first few employees and they are scattered throughout the country and Frankly, I'm I'm nearly certain pre-COVID we would not have met any of them or even hired any of them. It just shows you, which I've always believed, but growing up in the Midwest and being sort of like a you know whatever you want to call it, an immigrant to the West Coast, immigrant to Silicon mm-hmm. Valley at, at some point, it was uh was was great talent can come from anywhere, and it doesn't just mean because you're located in Silicon Valley that you are better or or worse. So I think I think I'm seeing that too play out as like. Great talent comes from anywhere. Remote is the future, and folks who are not ahead of the curve may they may fall behind. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't have a strong perspective quite yet, but it's it's formalizing in my head for a moment. Yeah, and I just to just to play your 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 role back to you there. Like I think one of the more exciting things for people in their careers right now is remember we used to go west. I mean, the, the California used to be the frontier. It started in the you know even pre gold rush right where ultimately a lot of creative individuals. We're trying to get away from Edison and the fact that Edison had patents over so much of the um, the visual technologies that creative individuals wanted to use to make things like motion films. And so they escaped basically to California where Edison couldn't impose his patents because they're too far away. And, and so these creative, you know, Muirbridge could cr- build the, the gallivanting horse and everything, not having to worry about this sort of big brother General Electric coming down and squashing them. 
we continue to move west from things like Wall Street and still California was this affordable place where dreams could be uh, thought of in one. California, unfortunately, is not like that anymore. You look at housing prices, you know, you look at uh, a young person starting their career, they're not going to, it's almost nearly impossible to tell them to move to California with the housing prices, right? And so now though, the frontier really seems to be the digital world, right? This idea that we can live anywhere. And ultimately, where we make our mark is not to be Leland Stanford driving in the stake of the end of the transcontinental railroad in California. It's this idea that, you know, anyone can work from anywhere on this huge meta frontier, which is the internet. And I think that's so, so exciting because you hear young people get downtrodden by the idea of, oh, I have to move to California. I've got to start paying $2,500 a month in rent. Hopefully the answer to that is no, because um, yeah. that's, that's not fair. Yep. Fully, fully agree. That was, that was unfrankly my, my experience when I moved out to California in 2012 was, you know, hey, coming from Chicago, uh, yeah, I, got, I had a, a great place in Chicago and play, paid, you know, relatively cheap rent and move out to SF and got a terrible place and paid way too much for it. And it was just like every, you know, it, it, every paycheck was just like, oh my God, I'm just eating this to be here, which yeah. is crazy. But uh I mean, that, that brings up a, you know, another point is, is why do you feel like today, especially and could be COVID induced, could be other things. Why are, why are people, and I think it was even prior to COVID, like the last three, four years, why are people obsessing over the future of work today? Uh, I think part of it is just because like, like you're saying, I mean, again, the, the COVID brings on this great reshift in where we live and, and where we can work from where we live. But it, again, the cracks were already in place before because you could, you could see the transformations happening inside of companies based on the technologies that we are now using. And really the question, the question you could ask as a, in a child's mind is like, why, why are we working this way if this is available to us? And so um, I think even before COVID, the reason why people would obsess on it, because there's a better way to work. There's no question. And now what COVID helped was just let's accelerate that. And so, you know, it's just, you know, COVID, COVID accelerated inevitability. And I think for younger people, they know that there's better ways and they're going towards, they're going, they're going to, they're going to get to inevitability faster than older generations will. Yeah, that makes sense. It's very straightforward. And how do you think technology, you know, going back to an earlier point, how do you think technology will impact the inequality gap or, you know, rent uh, at a low level or how people decide where to live, any of that? Well, I think, I mean, again, I'm, I, I should preface that I'm a huge uh, believer in technology, and I'm very much an optimist on how technology can improve the quality of lives. And so, you know, what I would say is technology is a incredible, uh, incredible driver of uh, quality. And maybe just to, I'll take kind of two macro points on that. One is, um, you know, you look at deflationary items, cost items versus inflationary cost items, right? If you, and there's a, there's a fantastic chart that's out there that shows basically um, almost anything that technology can really touch. That could be, uh, you know, things like televisions, um, automobiles, uh, you know, phones, all that. Um, tele, uh, when, when technology can really, in a, in more of an open market, can really touch those things. They, the cost crater, basically, they're incredibly deflationary, right? Where technology it can't touch things as much, mostly because of regulated environments, the three big things in, in America would be um, healthcare, education, and housing are three areas where you could say, where's the technology, so to speak? in those processes, um, those are incredibly inflationary, meaning those are, are getting more expensive in our lifetimes and, and can, can continue to. So on one end area, I would say, I would, I would try to argue that technology is a deflationary force. It's going to drive costs down. And that ideally creates a more equitable society. 
The second thing would be just, you know, if you could take a broader macro view, and again, this is where it's not as much a US view, but the global view, we are living through really the largest, the, the greatest boom in, you know, pulling people out of poverty in, in any, any lifetime, right? So billions of people are are becoming, uh, are living in more urbanized environments, whether that's villages or larger cities, and they're coming out of um, deep, deep poverty, right? And, and a lot of areas, mostly areas like India and Africa and, and, and even China. And so, and, and a lot of that is brought on by global globalization, of course, which again has positives and negative externalities, um, but it's also brought on by technology, by the idea that people are connected, they can potentially work in other areas, and they can be uh, more connected to, you know, a, a global global GDP, uh, global workforce type thing. Um, so yeah, I will, you know, I'll, I'll die on the, I'll die on the stake about that, the idea that technology can really drive equality versus inequality. Yeah, that that is a good perspective. And it's curious to me, why folks, why folks, I guess it's maybe a human nature thing now that I'm even saying it out loud, go to the negative, right? They see the negatives of technology, which is this massive equity gap, if you want to call it there, inequality gap. However, they don't look at the, you know, which which you mentioned, right? More folks now than ever are coming out of poverty. They look at, yeah, we're good, but we may see a trillionaire, a couple trillionaires, several trillionaires in our life. And we also see folks that are just struggling to make rent. So mm -hmm. I think they look at that and assess technology and just say technology bad versus, hey, technology is would, would you actually want to be alive, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years back where you didn't even have basic things like not even leave, a, let alone computers, but, you know, basic medicine and stuff like that, where uh, you don't have to worry about it today. Like we've improved our lives significantly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, one last plug would just be, uh, you know, we're, we're literally um, it's very hard to even wrap your heads around it. But you can imagine the way history will ho hopefully look at it. Um, you know, uh, the, the work done with the vaccines that have come out, mostly out of America with the, the innovation, the innovative structures of uh, how companies like Moderna and even the work of Pfizer can be set up. You know, these are literally world-changing vaccines that, that in effect, saved, saved millions of lives, will continue to save millions of lives. And, um, you know, we just sort of take it for granted a little bit. Um, and, but you can study past pandemics and understand that they are they were far worse. And, yep. Um, yep. you know, there's and the fact that these vaccines are effectively free and hopefully going to be available to the entire world uh, in time is, is, is really, really incredible. And, and a testament to uh, just to, to wave the flag for capitalism. Like these are these were done in markets that that allowed them to be done. And um, we, we should be proud of the work that's been done in America. In, in order to make that happen. Yep. Restrictions moved away to in, in rare form to make them happen and make them happen with speed. So I think I, I would agree. I think more, much more, much more good than bad. Switching gears a little bit. So obviously you work on the forefront of empowering salespeople. There's several other, you know, entities and organizations within any big company, but what do you feel like will be in the future automated away from companies and where does the automation stop? What are, what roles, what, what orgs within a company are here to stay forever? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. And, and again, I personally just to, to, to maybe defend the salesperson, you know, what I'll say up front is I don't think sellers are going away. Um, you know, I've, I've been working now for about 20 years. And every year someone tells me how they've automated the sales process and, you know, you no longer need a seller. And um, I smile and listen. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, to take, to take the adage from, from Bezos and maybe just to 
not to plug variants, but to plug how I think about building a company. Jeff Bezos has a famous saying, which is like, if you want to make money, uh, of course, you have to understand what's going to change. But if you want to make a lot of money, it's actually more important to understand and to bet on what's not going to change. And in the case of Amazon, of course, what he realized was things were moving into a much more of a digital e-commerce environment. But what didn't change were the fact that people wanted low prices and they wanted convenience and they wanted to be considered the most important part of the, the buying process. And Bezos has nailed that. I mean, there's no question that Amazon offers low prices, convenience, and uh, puts the customer first. And if you think about it, like that's why they 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 really win. And so that idea of not changing is is very important for anyone in their career to, to think about. Like as much as it is important to think about what's changing, what's what's not going to change. So my pitch there is sales is not going away. Sellers are incredibly valuable to the economy, the world, and I don't think you're going to automate them out. What can you automate to to, to your question? Actually, there's a lot in the core, of course, um, the term variance, just to just to tell you a little bit about that that term. So you can you can put all work on a spectrum, basically, if you were to lay out exactly what people do in a day, you could put all that work on a spectrum. Um, And on one end, you would have low variance. And on one end, you'd have high variance. Low variance work would be work where you want things to be um, that are that are highly repetitive and you want them to come out exactly the same. So let me give you an example. Like when you build a jet engine and that thing's coming off the factory line, you want it exactly to spec to how you've designed it. Because of course, if you don't make it exactly to spec, it could fall off the side of the plane and you can't have that happen, right? And so what you'll hear is like, oh, well, that thing is exactly precise to like Six Sigma of like what it was meant to be. So like six decimal places, exact, precise coming off that factory line. So anything that's built in that world has low variance. On the other end would be high variance work. Um, So on the low end, think of like manufacturing as low variance, every widget off the factory line, exactly the same. On the high end of a variance would be every single time you build something, it's different. So think of like um, research and development. Think about Moderna with the vaccine. The entire intent of the majority of work they're doing is they're trying to discover and they're trying to invest in things that will come out differently than you know what they they are currently doing today. So all work can be like that, right? On on the low end, you have you know Six Sigma manufacturing. On the high end, you have like literally, here's a dollar, Danny. Don't come back until you have something different. And so and and so on. One way to think about it is on the lower end of variance, you should always be looking to automate because you want processes to be exact. And that's where machines, that's where code, that's where all these things are very good at saying like, oh, we can automate this. On the high end though, the high end of variance, the 100% variance, the 90% variance, you want humans because humans have brains. And as, as, as much as we don't understand them, what we know about being a human is we can be creative. We can take connections, we can draw uh, you know, in our brain, we can start to see where this influences that. So let me think about creating, you know, something else, right? And the brain, the human brain is better than anything at this. It's better than any machine. We talk about artificial intelligence, but again, it's it's very rote. It's it's much more rote processy based. We talk about machine learning, much more rote processy based. There's nothing like the human brain when it comes to high variance work. So let's just take it, let's put a seller in the seat now and say, okay, let's lay out all the work of a seller on a spectrum from low variance work to high variance work. What can we automate for a seller? Can we automate the ability to qualify a lead? Okay, so let's break down what does it take to say that this lead would be qualified? What can a computer or a piece of software automate as part of that process? Okay, well, we could automate a questionnaire that could ask questions, that could 
pass it past the stage gate. We could file that in the uh, CRM system that could all live there. Great. But then on the higher end, a seller inferring that this person is interested in these things based on things I've talked to them about and based on their complexity of their organization and based on the timing and all these other factors that generally go into sales, that's still best equipped by a human brain understanding that, interpreting that and driving actions. So as much as possible, you want software to be used to automate rote processes uh, and basically automate as much of the low variance work as possible. And you want a seller to be doing as much of the work on the higher end of variance. Mm -hmm. And then what you want systems to do around that is to collect and capture that so that we know Danny made that, made, Danny had that really good outbound call or Danny had that really good um, objection handle. Let's make sure that we collect and capture that so we can train the next person, right? Yeah. And the next person. Now, again, you'll hear people say, oh, well, let's take that amazing Danny and let's collect it all. And then we'll just automate Danny. But, you know, good luck. And <laughs> again, not just good luck. It's, it's not going to happen. Danny's brain is still so complex and so interesting and so creative that that is the value of, of the human that just, it, you know, that, you know, computers are nowhere close to being able to automate. Yeah. So put it out on Spectrum. Automate the low end as much as possible. And as a young person, you should be demanding this in your job. You should not be doing real processes. You should not be doing things that should be automated. You should be demanding your company automate those things. On the high end, continue to be a human, continue to draw inspiration from multiple places. And where possible, put systems in place to collect and capture as much of that so you can teach the rest of the organization how that's been done. Yeah, that's a near perfect answer. It's something that I've uh, thought about in my career very, very often. And you put it as eloquently as, uh, as, as I've ever heard. So I, I really appreciate that spectrum and, you know, where you automate and where you don't. And uh, you can see it in one of our playbooks uh, at, at, at Ramped, but it, it literally says micromanage the process, micromanage sales process, not people. And I think it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. not the exact same, but it's, it's a similar mindset of, you know, you can't, you can't micro, you can't automate a person out of the system, but make sure the system is set up so the person can fly, can just succeed yes. and just run as fast as they want and as creatively as you want. I think that was the word, an operating word that you said often there that creatively it's not you're not going to replace that you're not going to automate that away there's just there's no way today it's i, I don't know Absolutely. i don't even i don't know when but not not for a while or ever yep. so you know we look uh, at ramped we look very critically at sales and uh, and the sales hiring process and our passion is in sales we feel very similarly that sales is not going anywhere it's a massive massive opportunity for young people what do you think the future of sales looks like um yeah, that's a great question. Um, so and I, I tend to look at sales through the lens of like B2B, B2B sellers. And, you know, currently there's there's about 5 million B2B sellers out there, I believe. And um, yeah, I think I think ultimately that number is going to quickly go to 10 million. And so, you know, if there's 5 million today, I think there'll be 10 million in, in, in the future and in, in, in our future and maybe even more. Um, so I think the the one, and this is great, I think for, you know, people coming up in their careers, understand the market's going to grow understand your skills are going to be more important. And as you grow into maybe more managerial type roles, your, your teams might be even larger and, and, and your importance is even greater. In terms of the future, like, you know, clearly what I think the, well, one, I think the opportunity for the, the career-minded person is the entire sales model will change. And other than, again, I think the thing that won't change, which is the seller will stay in seat. 
all signals are pointing to like uh, amazing change. And so we, we call it the five forces. I'll, I'll try to break down really quickly for them, for, for your audience. But I think it is, it is really critical to understand just how much sales will change. The first force is this idea that increasingly the buyer is in control of the sales process. And you might say like, yeah, duh. But like, this is a very big change. Like when I started Percolate in 2011, I would say we had control. The, the vendor had control of the sales process. Our product was locked up. You couldn't use it until you purchased it. We had a lot of our information, our documentation, how we wanted you to use the product. Again, behind a paywall, you had to buy services for that. In the modern day, all of this information, you know, in 10 years time, all this information is now on the internet because of competitive pressures and market forces. You increasingly have to give your product away for free, have a trial, have a freemium product and a proof of concept. So this idea that you're like, you can't touch it until you buy it, that's gone. As a seller, that's a big architectural shift, right? In terms of how you're thinking about qualification and how you're actually thinking about that, that customer journey. So that's the first one in terms of a force, right? Assume you have less control. Assume your buyer has way more control. And how are you going to manage that sales process? The second big shift is the idea that increasingly you can use data from your product or from your marketing website, your website, so to speak, to inform your sales process. And so understanding and being what I would call more product-led in your sales motion than more sales-led in your sales motion. So using this data that comes from your the object that you actually sell to help you sell. The data here is just fantastic in terms of being able to you know, close bigger deals, to be, being able to close more efficient deals when you're using product data in your sales process. The, the challenge, of course, and where this really strikes the seller though, is potentially you have to think about your first deal being smaller. In the more traditional sales world, a lot of the funnel and dynamics of a funnel where you are going to qualify a customer down and you close them for the kind of the big deal, and then you moved on to the next customer. But increasingly, it looks like the, the, the customer is demanding to do a smaller deal, and then they, you can expand them along the way, right? So in, in this in software terms is called like net dollar retention, or this idea that your expansion, your ability to expand a customer um, is really your opportunity, because most likely you're going to start them on a smaller deal. So again, most traditional, uh, let's just call them old school sellers, do not think like this. But the newer generation is going to need to think like this because you're most likely going to stay on a customer, develop a longer term relationship. And you're at, you know, the gold is sort of at the end of this rainbow versus like in the uh, initial product sell. The next big force for sellers is moving away from having to spend time in CRMs or systems of records where what they're primarily expected to do are things that probably should be more automated, like fill out fields, like fill out yeah. call reports, fill out opportunities, that stuff should become more automated. We see technologies like Gong, which are now saying like, I don't have to take notes because I can just transcribe and it's going to help me understand what was important. Or tools like Clary, which just say like, based on all the data, I can start to infer where this opportunity stage is first the seller going in and manually entering it. So sellers will move their technological capabilities from things that are hopefully going to be more automated in systems of records to more systems of what I call collaboration. So the future and a big part of the future work, I believe, are systems like Slack, where you have a much more collaborative architecture, where your systems are actually feeding into these, these meta operate, work operating systems like Slack. 
and you're able to actually work across the company. So you're a seller, you need a resource, you need to show that resource why you need them. Here's an example of something a customer or prospect has done. Let's brainstorm around this, let's huddle around this so that I can get back to them very quickly. That entire model of collaboration is very, very different than uh, the the old world of working and, and how you had to work. And so that's something I just think is is very, very important. And then the final force is basically for, and this is a little less for the seller, but increasingly the seller will qualify the lead more than the marketer because increasingly we're moving away from, we're moving into a privacy-led world where so much of marketing was about targeting third-party cookie data and other third-party data that they got, they, they bought often from data brokers. That world is going away because increasingly the larger platforms like Apple and Google are saying, you can't do that. And so the only way to target and retarget your leads is to get them onto your website, get first party data on them, what that's called, get them to even log in and then interact with them. So that's the, another really big force where the seller becomes much more important than say the marketer, because now they need to control that customer journey and get that customer actually to their website. And then the final force is the force we talked around originally, which is, it's not a change. It's the same. You're in that seat. You're more important than ever. And, you know, get ready to make a ton of money in the, as every, all these other four forces start to take, take hold. I mean, this is, this is great. And it, I mean, we've been seeing it for, I would call it almost like five years, right? It's like this shift from, from like Wolf of Wall Street style sales, you know, uh, boiler, boiler room, Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, Alec Baldwin to almost like Steve Jobs, right? Or like a, a product person. I think of almost like, uh, you know, Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky, like, he has so many podcasts that I found myself listening to more and more as sales has has changed a bit on design mentality, product mentality versus, you know, what it used to be, which was like, you got this list in front of you, dial down until someone answers, dial down, just close them, you know, smooth talk your way into a deal. And frankly, like those, those days are gone almost. There, there, yes. There's some industries where you could maybe get away with it, but they're, they're pretty much dead. You have to sell with data, with empathy robust and rich qualification um, and all of this automated. So, well, and, and yeah, this is the great renaissance for sales, like this time that we're living through, like this is the, and let me just say one other thing, because it's along what you're saying, but I think it's very important. Inside of organization, sales is often seen as the, you know, the stupid function. Oh, sellers can't touch that data. They can't touch this. They can't touch that. Like they're just the guys that go out and, you know, club baby seals and, you know, get the deals done. And that is so wrong and yep. so silly and so undermining to sellers. And what's crazy is if you look at the cost of goods sold of any 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 company, the highest paid people are sellers. Yep. Your highest paid people should be your best people. And they should be the people, you should be giving them control of things. They should control data. You know, like why would you have a marketer control an account-based marketing workflow for a seller if that seller makes twice as much as that marketer? Like that you should give that seller way more control of that process. And yep. of course, their, 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 their compensation, of course, is much more based on their ability to actually get the deal closed. But in theory, if they're going to do that, they would make way more money. So this is the, rena the renaissance is the sellers are going to be more in more control. They're going to be able to touch more product. They're going to demand more product, uh, yep. you know, products and tools. And they're going to have to, of course, be ready for that. So they're going to, under they're going to have to understand how to orchestrate and, 
it'd be great with this, but I'm very confident the next generation of sellers can touch tools and will will not have a problem with this. And that's also why so much of the next generation has the opportunity just to, to usurp the old generation and quickly take over leadership roles and bigger sales roles um, that maybe you would think in the past would take 10 to 15 years to actually acquire. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we we speak the same language on it. I think it's, I think that's true. And uh, your point on your best and highest paid folks or your highest paid folks should be the best folks. Uh, it, it rings true, right? In almost no other industry is it the case where your highest paid folks are looked at as like the, the ugly stepchild. It just doesn't, yes. it doesn't make any sense, right? It, that's right. That's right. It, it's not straightforward. Um, any professional organization, any, you know, professional sports organization, the, the highest paid folks are revered to like extremes that's right. almost, you know? That's so, right. It's it's very funny that it works out like that in sales, and I I agree it's shifting. So want to get out uh, on on one personal question at the end to shift away from workplace discussion more on you. So one, well, where, where can where can folks find you? And two, um, you know, leave them with your professional mantra, your workplace mantra or philosophy. Yeah, sure. So where you can find me, just um, I'm James at variance.com. You can find me on Twitter, James underscore Gross. LinkedIn or, you know, on our website, variance.com. My professional mantra, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think ultimately I'm a, I'm an optimist. Um, I believe, I believe the world is going to get better, but then I'm also a determinist, right? So I'm not, I'm not indeterminate about that. I don't say that and think like, okay, all I got to do is sit back and it's going to get better. I want to be a determinist, meaning I want to help make it better. I want to I believe it's going to get better because I'm going to put everything I can into that, all my ambition, all of my sweat and all my grit into trying to make this place better. Because I, I, every, all history tells me when you take people that are passionate and ambitious and you give them runway, things can get a lot better. So my philosophy is just that, like we can make things better and we're going to make things better because we're, we're determined to do it. And so I want to just be around people like that and constantly pushed by people like that. And I don't need cynical people around me. I don't need to, you know, have, have people around me that like, you know, don't see the world as getting better. Not because it's fine that they have those point of view, but I'm going to, my philosophy is I want to surround myself with as many people that have that similar worldview of optimism and determinism. And I want to, I want to make things better with them. Yeah, that's awesome. Very forward looking and also accountable, which is uh, some, a trait that, uh, that many of the best, best salespeople have ingrained in them. So that, that makes sense. That's straightforward. Well, James, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. So many topics to cover that, that I think we agree and see pretty close to eye to eye on. And I know our audience is going to absolutely love it. We'd love to have you back on at some point in the future. And for, for folks out there, check out Variance. Uh, it looks like an awesome tool that can really help salespeople. And thanks, uh, thanks again for joining us on Workplace Disrupted. And uh, we'll see you on the next show. Thank you, Danny. Thank you for listening to The Ramped Podcast. To access our show notes, The Ramped platform, or to become a corporate partner, visit www.rampedcareers.com or email us at sales at rampedcareers.com. This podcast is brought to you by Ramped. Ramped is on a mission to democratize job access through learning and career discovery. Until next time.